With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Good News with Angie Austin. Now, with the good news, here's Angie. Angie Austin and Dr. Cheryl Lentz. I wanted to tell you, Dr. Cheryl Lentz, about apologies. We've talked uh, about that before, and I've given you the new moniker from um, our byline from failure to fabulous. And so that's uh, that's Dr. Cheryl Lentz from failure to fabulous. And I want to talk about four hard things to start doing for yourself because you and I have talked about uh, how we react lately. Okay, first of all, the apology. Uh, welcome, by the way. Ah, very good to be here. Thank you. All right, my daughter, uh, Hope, we, we talked recently about some people we knew or know and uh, knew, some that passed away, uh, older than we are uh, and who have uh, come from a generation where apologies are like accepting defeat or failure that they just right. can't apologize. My mother-in-law is one of them. I had a favorite aunt who would apologize. She would go to her grave with, you know, her closest relative uh, mad at her just so she wouldn't have to apologize. And my husband's not a huge fan of it, but he will apologize. And if I apologize first, he'll always apologize back. And I've shown my kids that apologies help, like, roll out the red carpet to peace. They roll out the red carpet to a happy family. It rolls out the red carpet to showing you love someone. And then you can all, you know, walk down that red carpet together holding hands and take your smiling picture because someone has opened the door to forgiveness by um, offering possibly the first apology. And I'm not saying fake apologies, but usually someone's involved in whatever the disagreement's about. Well, my daughter, Hope, um, her best friend is upset um, because there's a new girl on the volleyball team that really likes my daughter hope and my daughter hope has a really large group of friends because she's really friendly she's not necessarily in the popular group she's not in the unpopular group she's in every group and she doesn't care like what your social status is anyway this girl was upset with my daughter but it really i think came down to and my husband and i said she's afraid she's losing you so she's reacting really she's angry at you um but please don't write some long because she wrote her a long text and in that text, she was a little bit accusatory, but underneath that, I think, was the hurt, you know, that she thought their friendship might not be what it was before. Um, and so anyway, I said, please don't react um, defensive. Like, I didn't tell everyone else that, and I didn't do that. Just say, we're friends, we'll work it out. And by the way, I only said that to you. I didn't tell everyone else that, you know, just short and sweet. Mm -hmm. And then if she wrote back again with more anger, just, I'm sorry, you're upset. That certainly wasn't my intent. Not to buy into that, like, tit for tit chat back and forth. Right. You did this, you did this, you did that, well, you did that. And so by the time we left the gym, because this started on the ride to the gym that she was getting all these texts, um, and the mom was messaging me and I just said, they'll work it out, they're friends. You know, they're, they're friends, it'll work out. And so by the time we left, she basically admitted, like, I've just been sad because I think I'm losing your friendship. And then everything was kind of fine. But the fact that my daughter apologized for the feelings the person was having and that she didn't react defensively or spewing anger back at the person, I realized that I think I've taught her well that, you know, starting off with more of an apologetic um, or 
um, conciliatory, you know, reaction that I want to offer the olive branch and not going tit for tat back and forth in these texts. And I also said, keep in mind, anything you say in these texts can be screenshotted and sent to other people. Anything you say on these texts, especially in high school, what you say can be taken out of context. So unless you're in front of the person speaking to them face to face, very little information needs to be given in these texts, except, you know, kind of just um, being receptive to their feelings and offering like, you know, something back that is calming, you know, not, but they will screenshot stuff and send it to each other and try to build the fight to be even bigger. So I was wondering why we put so much effort into the negativity of the fighting instead of putting more effort into the reconciliation and de-escalation of this to be able to preserve the friendship because to me that's the end goal it's like do you want your friend or not at some point there's going to be words you can't put back in that bottle and the hurt will always remain so can you de-escalate it before it gets out of hand yeah and I love that I love that she's learned to de-escalate and we had been taking until my husband put the kibosh on it these family conflict resolution you know like one hour meetings a week figuring out how to solve things and use kind words and treat each other better and it has gotten better in terms of the siblings you know But my husband didn't like it that he interrupted him. And the guy said that was part of it, part of like how he, you know, solves these problems or whatever. But my husband was so mad the guy would interrupt him that he's like, I'm done. I'm like, all right, fine. But um, yeah, so that was that. But at least I got him to go, you know, five or six times. So it did help. Because we talk about that in, in, matter of fact, I had a podcast this morning with the university and we were talking about things and how to de-escalate some of the conflict for new faculty. And I was sharing some of the stories. It takes time to develop these skills and we don't teach them in academia. I wish they taught them just like you're trying to teach your daughter. Those skills are sometimes more valuable than the content we teach in college because it's the no, it's the negotiation. It's learning to be a good human are the skills to be able to have that so we can Oh, I help. love that. Learning to be a, a good human, like helping my kid get to get to heaven, you know, to that, you know, teaching them to treat people the way that they want to be treated. Well, I think there's too much conflict in the world. We're too anger. I mean, there's all kinds of things with COVID and nicely. We don't want to contribute to that. And sometimes somebody will pop off and say something. Sometimes texts can be absolutely horrible. I have a friend of mine working with me because when I tend to get a little more emotional, not necessarily feisty, I will tend to share more feelings on text than need to be in that medium. And it's better resolved either face to face or over a phone. But sometimes you need to get it out. And those aren't always healthy mechanisms. So you and I have talked many times, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And text isn't always the proper place for it. Uh, I think that I learned some things too when I went to People Camp, which I think you're going to go to uh, with me next year. I, um, alt- they, I did the Alternatives to Violence workshop in this um, mm-hmm. Alternatives to Violence. I think it started when Quakers and inmates, these Quakers developed nonviolence workshops and they worked with inmates who then went on to nationally, um, you know, uh, talk about this AVP program, Alternatives to Nonviolence. And I took the workshop while I was at People Camp because a lot of the people are AVP people and they, they teach in the prisons. And anyway, to make a long story short, they teach you how to de-escalate. And so that is what I said, that word you used. I used that with hope. I said, you de-escalated that. I was so proud of you. So, and she, she she's very loving, so I can see how she would do that. Now, reaction. I don't know if we'll have um, time to do this whole thing, but it's four hard things to start doing for yourself from that website I like so much, Mark and Angel. I get the um, their 
their blog. I get a little email every day. And it says, number two is remind yourself that the ability to not overreact or engage too deeply in others people's, other people's drama keeps your mind clear, your heart at peace, and you fully composed in otherwise uncontrollable situations. With practice, inner calmness can be your human superpower. And I think that's good for me as well. I don't overreact with my kids until it goes to level 10. And so I feel like they push me, push me, push me towards the edge of the cliff. And then I yell at them. And it's really short-lived. It's very loud. And it really um, shuts them up, let's be honest. because Oh, absolutely. Anybody, defensiveness shuts our ears and shuts the conversation because we're too busy being angry and we're not listening. And so the better part of valor there is let the emotion subside, then the content can come out. But that's tough for any of us because we're human. And that's the part we don't like to do. The same reason why we talked about apologies. We don't like to apologize because we don't like to get mad. And we don't like to not be in complete control. But sometimes we have to realize that going, you know what, I messed up. I'm human. I got a little ahead of myself. And I sometimes make assumptions because one of my character flaws is I don't do well with silence. Oh. When I have people who don't say anything to me, oh, does my mind go there? Because we tend to fill in the vacuum. If somebody doesn't give us their version, we will complete the sentence as it were so it's oh, always yeah. to stay in, control, in control of the narrative than to let someone else finish that sentence and so when someone gives me silence or doesn't react to me that is the worst type of torture for me because my i'm off the races oh they must not like me they must i mean my self-talk goes off the rails so when you're speaking to that is if i can stay calm and say you know what you don't know what it means like don't react to something that it was absolutely nothing i had this happen this week a friend of mine just kind of fell off the grid and i was a little insulted by it and i was like yeah i don't know then he came back and he was just like, no, it was no big deal. It's just like, see, so I'm so grateful. I reacted to internally. I'm glad I didn't externally because it would have put him in a difficult situation when it was my mess, not his, because I just didn't know what was going on. So I um I do call that emotional blackmail. My mother-in-law sometimes says that she stops talking to you when she's mad at you. But I love her now. I get her. So it doesn't even matter anymore. Okay, four hard things to start doing for yourself. We might be able to break these down more later, but you and I have talked about this one um, as well. So um, I think we'll spend more time on it later, but I want to go through these to at least introduce them. It's incredibly yeah. easy to overestimate the significance of a single decision. And you and I've talked about that recently, how one decision can change the course of your life. And you talk about in college when your professor basically removed you from the program, you wanted to be, you know, like the best organ organist in the world. And um, he said, well, you're not quite the Olympian. And then you could have, you know, just gone to another program, but you changed the course of your life. Two more. Turn the uh, tune out the cheap, cheap shots that people take at you. I think that's really good for my um, teenagers to discuss that one. And there's a big difference between this is number four. There's so that's all four. There's a big difference between empty fatigue and gratifying exhaustion. Life that's is tough. short. Life is short. Invest daily in meaningful activities and don't wait around. Too often we wait because we think we need to find something new or different to be passionate about. But that's not true. If you want more passion in your life right now, act accordingly right now. Like if you were amazing, what would you do right now? Put your whole heart into the next thing you do. And so that maybe uh, maybe the next opportunity will be something that you have passion for because more opportunities are going to come to those who are experiencing that gratifying exhaustion by investing in meaningful activities and putting their best into it. Mm, I love that. I'm going to have to remember that one in there. But, but don't we know that when you absolutely have the hardest thing you've ever done and that smile comes across your face when you know you finished it and you did it and you're like, yes. 
as opposed to, oh, my God, it's over, you know? So I think it really is that qualification of who you are inside. Are you willing to go through it even when the going gets tough and afterwards you're like, yeah, baby, I did that. Good job, you know? You know, I've been getting things like this that have been connecting with me because I think I have lost that spark to do those things because I'm so invested in, I just sent this to you, by the way, I'm so invested in my kids and what they're doing and their successes Mm -hmm. that I've really put my own passions and say, I guess they're my passion and they right now, they are, they're my calling, you know, that they're my outreach. They are, you know, where I do my volunteer work per se in the community. Right now I'm pouring everything into them. Uh, But I still can, you know, be a little more aggressive about going after some of the things that for them and for me that um, I could put a little more effort into. You know, I feel like I use half the day as like I'm totally in 100% doing whatever they need and half the day I'm just kind of a little bit more lackluster and just like, well, they're at school, I can kind of chill, but I really could use my day a lot more usefully um, than I do, I think, right now. I'm not that old. You know, we're the same age, so I'm not right. that old. But I think you I... also have to find some kind of balance where you can have you without losing yourself in their pa- in your passion for them. At mm-hmm. some point, you have to have a space that's just Angie, and it's not unusual for passion to override that as we get so singularly focused that sometimes we forget a little bit about ourselves. And so I'd encourage you to be able to make sure that you can find balance between the two because you're good to them and you're training them in ways I wish most of my college students had these skills. But I want to make sure there's still space for you. You know, we've been taking their phones away at night and we have family time and you're going to laugh at how we spend it. But one show that we can all get into together, we sometimes have a learning moment where I think I'll talk about reactions tonight um, from this particular article and how we react to people. And I can be a superpower to be a good reactor. Um, but we watch Survivor together and we get a kick out of it. It's like our time together and we get our popcorn or if somebody's come home late from sports or from Young Life and they might grab their dinner and come in there. We have, you know, Lazy Boy and we have the snuggle chair and we have a bench at the end of our bed and we've got a giant bed. So a couple of them might be at the bottom of the bed. And sometimes my mom will come in and we all watch that together. And it's been kind of nice to have that family time rather than them be two hours in their room on their phone. So that's been, oh, DrCherylLentz.com. We're out of time again. If you want to write a book if you want an incredible speaker drcherylentz.com love you friend love you too bye-bye longmont is listening to the mighty 670 klt denver when you shop at your local arc your hard-earned money directly supports individuals with disabilities 80 percent of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities are unemployed At ARC thrift stores, approximately 20% of their employees are individuals with intellectual or developmental disabilities. ARC Thrift is one of Colorado's most prominent employers for people with disabilities. They provide extra support for their employees, allowing them to decide how they live, learn, and work through the ARC Ambassadors program. The program provides a community for employees with disabilities where they create lasting friendships. ARC Thrift Ambassadors attend social events throughout the year. ARC is a company that lives and breathes its mission of going above and beyond to create a space of inclusivity, morale, and culture. Shop at an ARC thrift store near you. Find your nearest location at arcthrift.com. That's arcthrift.com. 
Hey friend, Angie Austin here with the good news. Well, today we are speaking with Candace Jones, the president and CEO of the Public Welfare Foundation. Candace, I'm so interested to find out more about the Public Welfare Foundation because I have a particular interest in this area, which I'll explain to you in a minute. So welcome. Thank you, Angie. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really interested. Let me know. Okay, so uh, tell me what uh, the Public Welfare Foundation is. Tell us, explain what it is, and then we'll get into the meat of the topic. So the Public Welfare Foundation is a traditional grant-making organization. So there are lots of organizations out there with foundation in the title, but we're actually a foundation for purposes of the IRS code, which means we exist to give money to other nonprofits that do good work. So like the Ford Foundation or MacArthur Foundation, we actually give resources to organizations, and we focus our giving on organizations that do criminal and youth justice reform work. Criminal and youth justice reform work. Okay. And I I know you used to work in Illinois, too, and I've got some family and roots there. Absolutely. And I was particularly interested. Yeah, yeah. I was particularly interested in the fact that um, you were helping in the area of, you know, the gun violence and and obviously juveniles as well. Yeah, for years I worked there. Are you guys from Chicago? Um, south of there. My husband worked for the station there in um, Chicago, um, WGN, and then Joliet, oh, south yeah. of there. My brother-in-law is a police officer there. And so, yeah. yes, yeah. very, very familiar with the area. My in-laws are there as well. Um, and so yeah. that interested me, first of all, that you had done so much of that. So um, the reason I'm interested in this area of work that you're involved in is um my father, who um, and my stepmom's from Iran, um, my dad was a professor, had his PhD, went to law school, very educated. We grew up in a very white area, but we always had to yeah. had these parties that weren't white. And I'm like, where is he getting these kids, you know? And so yeah. my dad uh, and then my stepmom, of course, being from Iran, we had a real diverse group of, you know, family yeah. friends. Yeah. So he invited me to this camp. We call it hippie camp, but it's called people camp. And I finally took classes this year. He teaches Tai Chi there for free to all the kids and people. It, it, they oh, teach, I love that. Yeah. They teach alternatives to violence. Um, it's called the Alternatives to Violence Project. I took some of the classes and they I work with people who that. are in, incarcerated and they teach them yeah. how to transform themselves and solve conflict without violence. So I'm just interested in this whole area. So let's yeah. talk about, um, you know, how we can get involved and, and what you do, you know, what you need help with. I love that. They're focusing on de-escalation tactics, I'm sure. Yes. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And it's really important work. That's exactly the kind of thing we work on because programs like that, they're not enough of them. And it's a critical linchpin. So let's get into it. I love this. All right. So let's talk about um, well, criminal and youth justice. I just watched uh, a show about firefighters who were inmates. And I didn't even know that if you were incarcerated, oh, you could yeah. be a firefighter. But then when they were done with this program, there was one guy who was like, he was like the foreman. He worked there for years. And yeah. when he was done, they said, I'm sorry, we can't hire you because he you couldn't have get a, a job. Yes, because you have uh, a violent, you know, um, conviction in your background. I'm like, wait a second. He was the star of the program. Why can't they hire yeah. him? So let's talk about yeah. what are you doing for criminal and youth justice? Like, what do you support? Oh, I love that. Okay, I'm going to take that in two parts because I love that you talk about you're talking about firefighters, principally in the West in California. Correct. We actually fund a program called the uh, Forest Fire Street Forest 
fire and recruitment program that focuses on exactly the issue. Incarcerated people are a big part of the force to fight wildfires in California, but then be, when they get out of incarceration because of their criminal conviction, they are not allowed actually to take those on as jobs, which would be critical in reentry to get them a viable income to get their lives back on track. And so organizations like the Fort Forest Fire Street and Recruitment Program are really trying to work on that. And it's sort of like a microcosm of a larger systemic issue in America, which is how are we supporting people to get their lives back on track? Because it's a two-part benefit for us. We need that critical part of our workforce to do jobs just like fighting those fires that serve a really critical function for our country. But we create so many barriers to people trying to reenter, and those barriers make it harder for people to get their footing and actually be successful when they're returning. So part of what we do in jurisdictions is support programs and services and organizations that work on those issues, trying to reduce barriers, trying to create educational programs and supportive services in incarceration so that people have a shot when they get out. I I have to tell you, I almost cried when my husband and I were watching it. And we saw this guy couldn't be yeah. hired. It, 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 seven years until he could be hired because he yeah. had this violent um, convic- uh, conviction that involved violence. So he and I just looked at each other like, this has to be changed. Like, how do they change this? Yeah. This is so wrong. But you. And he was uh, already trained, right? Saving lives. Uh, like he four or five years. People. Yeah. So um, we thought, gosh, this that that documentary and then the work you're doing, that's helping to ch- to change this. All right. Prison reform. I'm always fascinated yeah. by like using the guys like if these guys, some of these guys can figure out how to make a shiv out of a toothbrush and make some code yeah. on a piece of paper as big as my thumb that some other guy can read. They obviously have talents that can be used in a positive way, like when they're yeah. training guide dogs, et cetera. So in terms yeah. of prison reform, what kinds of things do you um, support? Do you um, do you guys back with your organization? You pack so much into the question. I mean, there's so many things, right? One of the things that we have to think about just as a broader society is how we use our resources pound for pound, because there are, there's certainly people that we incarcerate that had they gotten supportive services, educational interventions early on, could have been amazing thinkers, contributors in a different way. For those people that we do still think that we need to incarcerate, which should be the minimum of people that are just creating a real societal risk, what are we doing to provide the program and services in custody to make sure that they actually get on track, that they realize they have some talent or capacity that they hadn't been identified earlier that's really going to make a difference. Research shows, Rand did a study years ago that showed the investment we put into educational programs pound for pound returns dividends on how much we're paying for incarceration. And so we have to think about that. We supported efforts a couple years ago to get Pell Grants back into correctional facilities all over the country because by having people get access to secondary education, it drastically reduces recidivism and allows them to get back on track. And we funded the Bureau Institute of Justice, Education Trust to be able to do some work and educate people on that issue. And it's restore that ability for hundreds, thousands of people in custody to be able to get access to those resources. But that's just one of the types of things we do. We would fund all kind of work around policy to educate people in state and local jurisdictions about issues just like that one on conditions of confinement, what happens when people get in a facility, but also some of the things that they can be doing before incarceration is the response. 
Okay, so Pell Grants and then jobs. You know, we always hear people joking around about, you know, not that it's funny at all. You know, oh, he'll be making license plates soon, you know, like they're headed to prison or whatever. What kinds of things are they doing in prisons that um, are helping people besides getting a Pell Grant and getting an education? uh, What else are they doing um, to... uh, provide work and you know satisfaction like that fire program that made them proud of themselves and feel like they were capable and also gave them respect yeah i there's different programs all over the country in some places they're teaching people uh they're giving them access to post-secondary education welding programs uh as you know programs to train service dogs to go out and help people that actually need that kind of support the forest fire tree firefighting depending on the region and what some of the corporate uh companies there are available, they will make sometimes those uh, programs and training services available in facilities. But the truth is, in America, those types of programs are few and far between because they're often not adequately funded. We're more interested in funding the bricks and mortar, Mm -hmm. which is the building and the bars. And we oftentimes see as sort of like gravy, something extra funding, the kind of services that really do pour into people and reduce recidivism. And so we need to see much more of that if we actually want to get ourselves out of the high rate of incarceration that we have in America, because it's just too few and far between. But there are really good programs that exist, some of them around training, some, as you know, in the program that you participated in with your father, are just about teaching uh, de-escalation skills. They have all kinds of programs. California is a place where they have program where they bring folks who have committed some harm together with the person that they harmed to reconcile, to talk about the harm, to just have that circle of accountability, which is restorative both for the person that created the harm and the person that was harmed. So there are different pockets of programs and services all over the country, but not in a comprehensive and consistent way. You know, I, I interviewed a woman who had an incredible program. Her name is uh, Beth Waitkus, and she started a program at San Quentin. Um, I think it's called yeah. the Insight Gardening Program. And uh, the... The inmates who were learning this, you know, not just like, you know, planting some lettuce, it was like full on gardening and also, you know, like herbs and um, uh, xeriscaping flowers. Agricultural work. Yes. And um, and I guess it spread now in California to some other facilities besides San Quentin. But to me, it just it does. You've got the people. And if you can give them something to strive for, a program like the firefighter program or, you know, training the dogs or this gardening program, then they have something to want to be good for. They have a purpose, something to aspire to. And, you know, coming from my um, background, Candace, I'm just, uh, I educated myself out of poverty. My dad was a professor, but he was estranged from our family for 35 years because of drinking and violence. So I've got one brother that was murdered. I have one brother that's currently homeless in a facility someplace in the Pacific Northwest. Another brother who educated himself out, he graduated in the top 1% of his class at uh, West Point Military Academy. And then I worked full-time all through high school and school college 40 hours a week at a hospital and I graduated with honors as well and funded my entire education with no debt so to me um, if you have a purpose like that you know educating yourself out of poverty when I see these kids whatever color they may be who come from a background where they don't where they have violence and alcohol and drugs in their families and then I see how they are in prison and they you see a documentary something and they're crying because they didn't have parents or they were in the gang young like I feel like a lot of the 
situations we have in prisons aren't due to the badness or inherent, you know, evil in the person. It's right. because of what was poured into them. Nothing. Right. If it, nothing was poured into them, how do they know how to do right? So I feel as a society, it's our responsibility to, in prison, give the people who do, like, walk, you know, who are in a faith pod or, you know, who are finding, like, a, a path. It's, it's our duty to try to give them something decent while they're in there so the recidivism rate isn't what it is right now. You hit on a really critical factor. You know, the thing that research shows is that for youth in particular, this is all youth, what they need is one consistent adult. So true. And I think people always find that really interesting, right? Because you think, oh, they need wealth and they need, you know, no. a two-parent household and they need they need one consistent adult that they know ups and downs, twists and turns, they're going to be there with them, reinforcing their value, their good, that they are loved. And there are some youth for whom that one consistent adult just doesn't exist. That little bit of value, as you know, being poured into them, you so much of what we think is possible is based on hope. So you're picking it up in facilities when we get that critical audience. If we could have the kind of services, access to Pell Grant, secondary education, workforce and training programs, it creates the kind of hope that could get people's lives on track. But one of the things we try to focus on in our giving is that what if we also had in communities of colors who've primarily been devastated by poverty and over-incarceration, that kind of hope and opportunity before people, kids need to see that then. They need to know that there is some opportunity, some ability for them to get access to education, to workforce and training programs, to cognitive behavioral therapy that can teach them de-escalation and different skills to be able to cope in society. If those kinds of things were available in communities, it could be trans Formative as a response to harm much earlier on. And we have to ensure that we're building out that early continuum of care in communities, as well as having some adequate responses once something goes wrong. So you're hitting it on the head. All right, Candace, I've got to, we're about out of time. Give me the website where people can get more info. Okay, at Public Welfare. They can follow us at publicwelfare.org, at Public Welfare on Twitter and Instagram. And I just have to say thank you so much for sharing your own incredible story. Awesome. Thank you, Candice. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Good News with Angie Austin on AM670 KLTT. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.